Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think you can dive right in because you can build some of these skills or start to develop them on the fly and start Mm -hmm. to kind of give that feedback. And oftentimes, you know, when there are managers in the group, I'll always talk to them beforehand because mm-hmm. managers are almost always mooseheads themselves. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Welcome, nerds. We are also joined by former colleague, friend in the space, Lisa Gill, the organizational coach, the founder of Reimaginaire, and the host of the Leader Morphosis podcast. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about mooseheads on the table, which requires some explanation. But before we unpack that, let's check in. Let's check in. We'll check in. Lisa is an old pro at checking in. <laughs> so the question for today is, tell us a bit about your most used emoji. Mm. I will ask Aaron to go first, then Lisa, then me. I would say it's a tie between the prayer hands and the (laughs) hands that are up, up hands. But it's all handwork. And I use the prayer hands to say thank you rather than pray, because it just feels like it's kind of that, you know, thank you very much kind of emotion. And I don't have another better substitute for that. And I love to thank people on Slack. So that's definitely that one. And then the up hands, it just feels like because there's these little lines coming off them, it feels like maybe it was like a clap and then the hands went up. Uh huh. And that is very exciting to me. Yeah, it's real celebration. It is. It feels movement oriented. Like totally. Yes. I feel like also your two are very like churchy. Yeah, a little bit. They're a little. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. I love it. All right. Lisa, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to say eggplant emoji, but that <laughs> that's only for comedy value. <laughs> Strong start. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I definitely use prayer hands a lot. I'm very polite. I'm British, so I love saying thank you to people a million times. And I do like we have this emoji in one of our team slacks. I think it's customized. It's like a little dancing tomato, I think. And I really love that guy. He's fun. That's amazing. We have a party parrot that I feel like might be friends with your dancing tomato in the ready slack. I also have two that will surprise no one who knows me. Definitely not either of you. One is the heart emoji and the other is the vomit emoji. (laughs) They are just, (laughs) I feel like they really, it's both sides of my personality. I'm like, I love you or barf right. no that's, that's not it. the range of your emotional experience that literally is your emotional that's it experience. those those are my reactions <laughs> to anything <laughs> so can i get some emoji advice from you both yeah since we're on the topic i often struggle with as an ally 
Is it more inclusive for me to use the yellow hands or oh. my own skin color or someone else's skin color? And I literally have wasted like minutes of my life sitting there being like, what's the right tone to strike with this prayer hands? Mm. Anybody ever think about that? Or am I just like way inside my own head? Lisa, what do you think? No, I do think about that, but I'm an indecisive person at the best of times. So when I kind of open up the choice, the spectrum of different colors of skin tones, I'm just like, oh, I don't know which one to choose. So it's just easier to stick with the default. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how I roll as well. Yeah, I, I use my own skin tone. Okay, there you go. Here's the, the rationalization to answer your question that I just made up after I said that. Great. Is... <laughs> Maybe it invites us all to use our own skin tones, right. therefore making space for many, many skin tones. Right. Rather than being like, we're all yellow. Like, no, one's, no one is yellow. Right. That would, be, yeah. that would indicate a serious illness. Right. You should go to the doctor. <laughs> all right. I mean, that was a good transition, I think, actually, to, to today's topic, which is Mooseheads on the Table, which is also the name of a wonderful book that, that you put out, Lisa, with with your partner, Karen. So maybe just to start for the audience that hasn't spent time with that yet, what is a moosehead and why should it be on the table? <laughs> yeah, so mooseheads in Sweden. So Karen tells it as in Sweden at the time, the phrase elephant in the room wasn't like common parlance. So people mm. didn't use that phrase. And and in Sweden, you see a lot of signs on, on the roads for like moose wandering around. I think they call them elk there, actually. But it was her way of saying putting the elephant in the room or in this case, the moose head on the table. But it's kind of a more gruesome image because it's like <laughs> the idea is that if we're sitting around a board table or, you know, in some meeting room and we're talking about something like a budget or a project or whatever, but there's this giant like rotting moose head on the table and it's dripping blood and there's flies buzzing around and no one is talking about it but we can all see it we can all smell it and it's like the thing we're not talking about it's the taboo it's the fact that we don't really trust the manager or that those two people haven't talked to each other for months or mm -hmm. you know that person got fired and we never really talked about why you know so Putting the moose head on the table is like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the thing that's taboo because that is so often the thing that's in the way for us to be really effective as a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how gruesome it is. <laughs> it's real vomit emoji, y'all. Yeah. It's, it's big vomit emoji energy, the moose head on the table. So I'm going to just go right into it, Lisa. Why are we so garbage at talking about the moose head or the elephant or the other versive gross <laughs> difficult thing that we all know is present. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is just like a human thing that our brains are wired to avoid threat. Mm -hmm. And our brain doesn't know the difference between perceived threats, like social threats and actual threats. Mm -hmm. So often it's really scary to think like, if I bring this thing up, that person might hate me. They might punch me, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And my brain is designed to protect me. So I think there's a very fundamental thing that our brains avoid that stuff that we, it's then becomes interesting, like, okay, so if we want to talk about these things more, then we kind of have to do things that cheat our brain or train our brain to do it anyway, because we know mm -hmm. it's worth it. But then I think there's also a bunch of like socialized stuff as well, that in, in workplaces, we don't talk about moose heads because 
we think it's not work, for example, we think, oh, that's personal mm. stuff or that's, you know, that's not work. Like, let's just like, if you've ever been in a meeting where there's a real tension between people and it's getting heated and someone says, okay, guys, let's just, let's, let's carry on talking about the, you know, the deadline or whatever. And you're like, no, but it's the thing <laughs> underneath yeah. that's mm-hmm. what's in the way. We can keep talking about the deadline, but we're not going to get anywhere. So I think it's that as well. So we have a lot of things stacked against us really in terms of not wanting to do it. And then on top of that is like personal experiences. So many of us have, you know, visceral memories of, oh, but remember that time where I tried to bring something up and it backfired and it was Mm -hmm. really painful and messy. And I'm terrified of that, or I need to be liked and I don't like, you know, disrupting the harmony. So, so many things going on that are in the way for us to talk about them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. My, my inner Irishman is well-trained at stuffing that stuff down deep (laughs) and forgetting that it's there until I have like a skin condition. I, (laughs) I also feel really resonant with what you said about wanting to be liked. I feel like for a lot of my, you know, career, it's not that I'm afraid of necessarily a real consequence, but the emotional consequence of just being in discord is is troubling uh, to me. So that that all makes a lot of sense. And actually, as you were talking about it, my mind began to wander to an episode we recorded earlier this week about what's happened at base camp. Mm. And and you know maybe there was a moose head on the table already. It wasn't being talked about, and then it was really not talked about. And now everyone's talking about it. Have you, did you follow that? And did you sort of correlate that back to your own work in any way? Yeah, well, I was I was just reading about it a couple of days ago, and I haven't gone into it in detail. But for me, it seemed like a bit of a like shadow side of what I imagine was like a well intentioned open culture. And I think mm-hmm. we're seeing this in general at the moment, where you know people are talking about this stuff more openly for good and bad. Right. And I think Basecamp just realized at a certain point, whoa, we're really not prepared or, or qualified. You know. We don't know how to support people to have these conversations about these moose heads. And so their reaction, as I kind of interpret it, was then one of like, okay, pretty top down, like, you know, because we don't know how to hold these conversations in a good way, let's just (laughs) not do it. And if you, if you, if that's a problem for you, then yeah, we'll help you to find a job somewhere else. And how do you think about, you talked about kind of having the skills or the tools or the framing to talk about moose heads well. When you go in and try to help with that, what are the things that you're trying to build competency around? Yeah, well, a lot of it is a lot of it is like getting people, and this is something as well that I think is a real shift in terms of, you know, what we're talking to people about in terms of like next stage organizations or whatever you want to call it. Part of that that I'm interested in is this shift from conflict resolution is something that HR does, or I go to my manager to fix to it's something that we all are responsible for. And not just that, but like responsible for attending to the relationships, ideally before you get these moose heads, or at least before they get really infected and really like obstructive. So a lot of times the capacity building stuff is around, first of all, like the ability to, to see it. It's like making it visible because a lot of us are kind of blind to this stuff that's going on, like these dynamics, like we feel them, but we don't, we're not used to the kind of putting language to them. So it's mm-hmm. partly about like training the ability to, 
to notice them and to sort of stop and change the the topic of conversation to, you know, going under the surface, so to speak. So let's stop talking about this issue because I think there's something going on under the surface that I think would be really valuable for us to talk about because I think that's in the way for us to actually move forward. Um, And then another key ability, of course, and it sounds so obvious, but it's so difficult in practice, is listening. Like Mm -hmm. most times when I'm working with groups to help them kind of carry out these moose heads, it's helping the individuals in the group to listen to each other, to kind of mirror back to each other, to play back the dynamics. Okay. So you're saying, you know, when Aaron becomes, you know, really passionate about something, he becomes like a bulldozer and kind of pushes through. And then you, Rodney, become kind of passive and your way of dealing with that is like withdrawing. And the more you withdraw, the more kind of frustrated and impassioned Aaron becomes. And and you try and describe and put words to something that's going on and you try and help people like listen to that and and sort of hear that. So it's a lot about, yeah, listening, making it visible, putting language on it, and then kind of confronting the gap. Like, okay, so this is how it is currently. How do we want it to be? What do we mm-hmm. want the climate to feel like? What do we want the culture to be? And then how do we get from A to B? Like what agreements do we need to make? What ground rules, what principles? And those are not just, you know, something that you write on a piece of paper and then never go back to again. Those are things that you hold each other to account to and you keep having meetings and conversations about and saying like, are we doing that? And if not, do we need to change that? What are we going to do? And, and, and sort of seeing everyone as being co-responsible for maintaining the climate, because most people see themselves as like consumers Mm -hmm. of the team working climate. And it's a big aha moment when you're like, oh, no, I'm a producer at any moment (laughs) in any meeting. I can say, hang on a minute, this meeting is not productive. Like what's the purpose of this meeting? Or hang on, we're not listening to each other. Can I time out and can we, you know, do something about that? Like I don't have to suffer. Mm -hmm. I can actually do something about it. Yeah. There's so much in that that is so much about systems writ large. Where I'd like to go a little bit is I feel like in your answer, you talked both about the individual behavior and skill set that needs some developing in terms of being able to listen. And potentially there's also something in there about like being aware of your own emotional reactions and the ways in which you get triggered and hooked that prevent you from actually hearing what other people are saying, et cetera. And then there is the the more system norms, explicit agreements, et cetera. When you're coaching a team, do you start with one or the other? And how do you think about the balance and, and even the utility of coaching the individual to deal with their own shit versus having organizational or team routines to serve? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends. I mean, oftentimes, so tough leadership training often works with companies where we'll send a bunch of people on our training courses. So they'll, those individuals will start to train some of these abilities that I talked about, like listening, Mm -hmm. asking, coaching questions, a bit of self-awareness, becoming aware of your pitfalls, things like that. And then in addition to that, we might also do some team coaching stuff and some moose head sessions. But other times we don't do that and we just go straight into the team coaching stuff. And I think it's like such a, in so so many ways, it's like a really powerful context because it's the work, like you're in the thick of it. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no better way to make it relevant and, you know, for the connection of what's in it for me or what's the relevance of this versus kind of just training something because you're in it and you, everyone can feel it. This doesn't work or this could be better. And so you can kind of build capacity along the way by sort of stopping people in a moment and say, okay, can I just pause you there for a second? So right now you're not listening to that person. Can I just have you practice something for a second just for fun? Can you play back to them what I hear you saying is this and this? Mm-hmm. You know, so you can, and then you can sort of make that a, t- a learning moment for the group. Like, so what I'm doing here is I'm trying to support you to listen to each other more or to sort of start to see these themes, these dynamics that are going on and how that's stopping you from being able to, etc. So I, th- I think you can come at it from different angles. And I, I think you can dive right in because you can build some of these skills or start to develop them on the fly and start mm-hmm. to kind of give that feedback. And oftentimes, you know, when there are managers in the group, I'll always talk to them beforehand mm-hmm. because managers are almost always moose heads themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so it's worth kind of chatting to them beforehand and, and sort of briefing them a little bit because there's a power dynamic of saying like, you know, your role here is really mainly to listen. Like, of course, you'll also have your say and your opinion. And I'll ask you to share that. But it's good if you can, you know, try to be aware of, you know, not talking so much and listening and, you know, be aware that you are probably a moosehead and that will come up. Mm -hmm. And if you can listen to that without being reactive or defensive, that will really help. And I will coach you and I'll support you in that. And I might interrupt or I might give you some feedback. Is that okay? And kind of getting the mandate in a way to do that, because that often helps as well. I'm glad you brought up power because I had a question about the different kinds of power that can influence our ability to have these conversations. And I'm curious in particular about tenure and what you've noticed with teams where, you know, some people have been there a long time, in some cases from the beginning, some people have only just arrived. Putting aside like managerial power and assuming flatness for a second, what do you think about these other sorts of power and how they creep in and show up? And what do you advise teams to do when there's some, you know, insecurity around that? Yeah, I think like that, that is a common moveset, actually. It's, it's almost always one that comes up in organizations, this sort of young ones versus the old ones. And I don't, (laughs) sometimes that's age, but often it's tenure, you know, like new people versus, you know, people who've been there a long time. And there's usually a dynamic of like, oh, you know, the, the sort of the people who've been here for a long time are really stubborn and they won't listen to new ideas and (laughs) that kind of thing. And, and then the old ones are saying of the, of the new ones, like, Oh, they, they they don't get it. And they just go charging in and they don't understand the context or, or they see us as like, you know, fuddy duddy and like blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that's a really good moose head to explore. And it also happens as well with, you know, talking about flat or self-managed organizations, you have a dynamic often between the people who get it, who've read reinventing organizations and they've, you know, read up on how to do like the advice process and whatever. And the people who don't get it, who are like, look, I just mm. don't like business books or like, what's this self-management thing? I'm just not into governance. And there's a kind of dynamic us versus them between, you know, those two parties. But yeah, in general, I think wherever there are power dynamics to try and like put that up on the table, put that moose head up on the table mm-hmm. and talk about it and say like, look, I think I'm noticing this you know, let's describe the ways in which we experience power, like good and bad. And, you know, what do we want to do about that? How are we going to make this work then, given that, you know, 
people bring qualities and they bring pitfalls and, and power is sometimes good and sometimes used, you know, in not so good ways. Speaking of that is, it does seem that some of these conversations, particularly with questions like that, that are very open-ended and, and expansive, you could spend a lot of time talking about mooseheads. Is there advice to teams about how much time to spend, when to stop or pause or take a break, how to not let mooseheads kind of pull you away from the work too much, et cetera, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you really need to tackle them before you can go back to the work. How do you think about allocating time and energy against these things? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's good to, to time box things. And like, usually the first time you decide you want to have this kind of conversation, because it's like a radically different kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. It's good to, to block off a chunk of time. You know, I'd say like two hours is a good amount of time. It depends on how big your team is. If you have a bigger team or, you know, you want to do it with like your whole organization, if you're what I'm talking about, if you're like a small organization, then you might want to box off like a half day or, or even like, you know, if you have like a two day offside or something, you might want to dedicate some time across the two days to kick it off. But yeah, of course, at some point, it, often there are moments where you, f- you reach like an impasse and it's, I've had lots of experiences where people have kind of said, okay, let's pause it for there. I think because you can read the room, it feels like the energy yeah. now is quite low. This is kind of exhausting. Let's come back to it. And sometimes if you sleep on it or you come back another time, something has shifted because often just by naming something, mm-hmm. even if we don't resolve it and there's not like some kind of Kodak moment, just by naming it can help people to be okay with it or to live with it in a different way. And then, you know, eventually it's great to do it as like a micro practice. So when my colleagues at Tough, when we have meetings together, we start them with any moose heads. And, you know, we're practiced enough at it now that we can say it quite briefly and we can coach each other to say, okay, what's needed? Do you need an apology, an explanation? Do you just need to feel heard in something in order to carry it out? And it can take, you know, less than a minute. Or if it's a bigger moose head, maybe those people go off into, you know, in this day with the pandemic into a breakout room and they take care (laughs) of it and then come back and maybe share what they learned or, you know, so you can become quite practiced at it without it needing to like completely sidetrack or hijack any of your meetings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great point. I, I feel like frequently, and, and I think this was true based on what we know of base camp, for example, the lack of reps makes people think, oh, this will be an all-consuming distraction for all time. And it's like, no, you just suck at it because you haven't done it yet. Right. It'll be fast when you get good. Like, you know, I also run slow when I haven't gone running for a year, but I can run fast if I run. So I really like that, that explanation. And hopefully it's a bit of an invitation for patience to people who are wading into this pool, which leads me to want to ask you, if a team senses that there are moose heads, and there are, and they want to have their first go, their first two-hour conversation, and they don't call you, how do you suggest to those listeners that they structure that conversation in a way that keeps it helpful? Yeah, well, I would say the like the most important thing at the start is to get the buy-in from everyone, mm. because what's really easy to do is and I, I do worry about this sometimes with people picking up my book 
is someone goes into a meeting, you know, books a two-hour meeting, doesn't tell people exactly what it's going to be, shows up and is like, hey, everyone, I read this book about moose heads. We're going to do this really cool thing. Okay, so right, let's start. So what what are the moose, you know, that isn't going to work. So it's, if you can do something at the start that gets the buy-in of the group, and that involves saying something about the purpose of this, like why I think this is important, because people are usually not that interested in just trying out a concept. They want to know, why like is this going to benefit me in some way mm-hmm. especially because we're asking people to take interpersonal risks here so i need to know what is worth me doing that so saying something like i want to try this thing and the purpose is really for us to have a better like team atmosphere to be to kind of make it even more trustful and open and i think it will help us collaborate even better if we can talk about these things and then describe the process the kind of you know we'll talk about how we would describe the climate currently and what what the current moose heads might be the taboos the things we're not talking about that we think are getting in the way and then we'll try and move towards make some agreements that will help us move towards the kind of climate we do want does anyone have any questions that would help them to to choose to do this or not? Mm. And that's really important then for people to be able to ask questions, voice concerns. And often people will say things like, well, I don't really get it. Like it feels like it's going to be really awkward or it might make things worse. Or sometimes people say, I don't feel safe to do that. Mm-hmm. Or And so if you can listen to people and and sort of make that okay and and try and answer their questions in such a way and then ask, you know, would you be willing to try it? Are you willing to consider there might be something in it? And I get that it might be scary or feel weird, but are you willing to try? And if everyone says yes, then you've done a huge part of the work because you have a group of people now who are co-responsible with you. It's not just you trying to drag people into this or kind of, you know, because it doesn't work if if you try to do that. Totally. And I I think that that kind of contracting at the beginning of this is super important and also a long time ago when I like worked at a big company and had a normal person's job <laughs> I was often the person in the meeting who spoke the moose head out loud because I'm controversial by nature and <laughs> I don't know. Just didn't. I it just didn't give a shit. I don't know. I don't really know why. But the reason that I say that is because it wasn't like sanctioned in any way, and it wasn't agreed upon in any way. And and the moment between speaking a truth into the air and the awkward silence before someone goes, "Yeah, that's right. I experienced that too," huh. is not a feeling that anyone enjoys having a lot of times. So, like having some agreement and participation and consent to say we are going to do this rather than being like, we're going to rely on someone who is feeling particularly fired up to say it. And then we will rally behind her or just let her hang there like an idiot is good. (laughs) I think it's really important and really helpful and probably a a pretty critical step to having that kind of information flow. Yeah, for sure. And I think I was like you, Rodney, when I was in the corporate world, I was the kind of voice of truth, I would say, uncomfortable things. And yeah, it often didn't get met with much enthusiasm because it Mm -hmm. put people on the defensive. And like a magic sentence that I've learned now that I wish I knew then is to say, is it okay if, so for example, because often like people don't know how to listen to something if they're not expecting it. 
Mm-hmm. So if you can say something like, I really want to share something and it might be a bit controversial, but my intention is I, I really think that if we could explore this, we could, you know, be even stronger as a team. Is it okay if I say something maybe a bit harsh, uh, some feedback or something I've observed, would that be okay? Mm-hmm. And then most people will say, yeah, okay. And now they're ready. And I've created mm-hmm. a listening, which is like, I'm not being a dick here. You know, I have, <laughs> I have our best intentions at heart. And then it's easier for people to listen because I've kind of prepared them for that. And then they might be like, oh, okay. Whereas before I was often just launching into, or just blurt something out in, you right. know, like in a company all hands or something like, you know. <laughs> and then everybody gets their wig snatched and exactly. it's, you know, <laughs> And then it's so, it was so easy for me then to be the, the, the victim, like nobody understands. Why does no one appreciate? I'm trying to make things better, but right. I was just seen as this like negative voice. Um, mm. But if I had prefaced it with that tiny little sentence and a bit of my intention, I think it's much more likely people would have actually listened I love that. I also wish that I had known that. <laughs> I also didn't do that. Now we all know it. Yeah, we all know it. We're all going to do it. And it's interesting that you were read as negative. I would say my experience was more that I felt like in the moments that I felt a bit hung out because there wasn't support there, I was just like, you cowards. <laughs> you, We all know I'm saying the thing because you've all said it to me. Now that I'm saying it out loud, y'all just hide under your desks like cowards, which is not a great team dynamic to have, as it (laughs) turns out. So either way, that, you know, would it be okay if I did something that's going to make you wildly uncomfortable, I think is a really smart preamble. (laughs) Yeah. And what I learned as well in my company was, like you, Rodney, like people would tell me, you know, management don't understand this and they're doing that and we're really unhappy about this. And then I thought I was doing the good thing by saying to the management team, for example, do you know that people are feeling this? But no one would then back me up and everyone would fall silent. But I also learned that I, though I was like well-intentioned, I was also kind of disempowering those people. Yes, absolutely. By talking on their behalf because their voices were never heard. So it did start to seem like it was just me Mm. (laughs) making things up. And that's why I really like this moosehead process, because if you practice it as a group, you don't need to rely on that one person who dares to speak the mooseheads, who will get burnt out, you know, frustrated, lonely, or, you know, other people might misconstrue their intentions. You all start to do it and, yeah. and embolden each other to do it. So you mentioned something earlier that piqued my interest, and I want to circle back to it briefly, which is doing a breakout. Some people are going to go talk about something and then come back and share what they've learned. When do you know that the moose head needs to stay on the table in front of everybody and be dealt with with and in front of everybody? And when when do you get signals that actually y'all can go take this into the corner and and unpack it? Yeah, I think it depends on the purpose of the meeting and how much time you have and whether it's whether it's relevant like whether it applies to the whole group and is like worth having a joint learning moment. And oftentimes with my colleagues, for example, we'll start with a moose head in the open forum. And, and if it becomes clear that it's quite deep or it's going to take some time to really carry it out, then, you know, often like one of my colleagues, it's often Carl Eric. He's the sort of, he's really the champion of moose heads when the rest of us can get a little bit scared of them he'll always kind of remind us of the value of them and he might say it sounds like 
there's a lot more to be discussed still. Like, do you want to maybe go into a breakout room? Mm. And then people can say yes or no. Or like what happened last week, I think last Friday, we had a half day development day together. And that a group of three just took the initiative to say, is it okay if we just create a breakout room because we need to talk about a moose head? And mm. we were all like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And then they did that for about half an hour and they came back. And when they came back, we said, do you want to share anything with the group about what you learned? And they shared a little bit about it. And it was really great. So we all kind of learned from that without needing to kind of, you know, take a whole half an hour from the whole agenda of the group to observe it, you know. I mean, I'm curious. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you guys questions. Of course you are. But I'm curious, like in the ready these days, do you have practices or rituals that that you do when, when there's a, an interpersonal tension or something like that, or are you starting to experiment with things? What are you learning about it? Yeah, I would say we have room to do more. We do have a specified conflict transformation process, but that is generally invoked when a lot of l- less formal and less deep channels have been exhausted. I would say that most of us have agreements within our small teams, within our small project teams. And so what that looks like, for example, in in the project team that I've worked most closely with over the last couple of years is every Friday we do a hot wash and we separate out what is happening at the client with what is happening in our team. And so we know we need to have both of those conversations in order to steer, but we try to be specific about having them separately. And and then also we have a feedback agreement that's very much about after every, like after every interaction, we call it Ask Cats. It's in another episode. <laughs> um, and so it's, to me, that doesn't solve the moose head question at a system level, but at the level of the people that I'm actually in the work with, in my experience, we don't get too much to something that is so gnarly and bloody and unresolved because it, the frequency of that tends to be like, hey, you interrupted me during that thing. Were you aware of that? It was, I didn't love it, etc. And it's usually like, oh, sorry, won't do it again. And so I think because of the frequency and the informality, but also the the depth and the closeness of those relationships, it's just kind of like in, it's like, in the air. It's like in the work. It's in the team. It's not larger external practice. And then I would say on the system side, one pattern I've noticed, although I agree that it would be fun and interesting and useful, I think, to have more formalized agreements about this. But one thing I've noticed is that our our three times annual retrospectives tend to be a place where at least one of the prompts is say what needs to be said get something out that maybe has been simmering or sitting. And sometimes we are able to then jump into an unpacking of that and a conversation about that that is that is fruitful. Sometimes they just sit on the board and, and they don't get scratched, which is less less fulfilling. But it definitely is one forum or occasion where the whole group is talking. But it's also, to be totally honest, it's gotten to the point where the group is pretty big and it's hard to have conversations about anything where everyone playing actually has a thought or has experience with that thing or has a similar way to approach it. And so it's it has been kind of a learning edge for us of like, and which is why I asked the question, like, can 22 people really talk about anything in a way that's that gives everyone room to talk and space to breathe and, you know, covers all the angles without spending, you know, two hours per topic. And so that's something that I think we're learning and, and testing around. 
Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. I've also found, by the way, that the Ready's tension and practice cards, in a way, mm. if if those are used well, it's a way of like bringing the moose heads out. <laughs> right there, it is on the card. <laughs> yeah, if people all vote on you know a particular tension card, I've often found that that's when people start talking about the moose heads around that topic. That it just becomes. Mm-hmm permission or a doorway into let's talk about the the stuff that we've all been feeling for years sometimes but never really been able to put our finger on or talk about now suddenly we have permission we have a framework to talk about it in so i think most cards on the table yeah yeah so lisa you have been in and around self-management coaching thinking etc for a long time for quite a while. And one of the things that I found really interesting in reading your book was pondering the differences between doing this work as the leader of a thing, as Karen did, and doing this work as a coach or a consultant, like the three of us generally do. And I just, I wanted to just hear you talk about that. You know, what are some of the pros and cons of that? And, you know, what have you seen? So the pros and cons of like what you can get done with this kind of process or transformation if you're a leader versus if you're a coach or consultant. Yeah, because, you know, reading Karen's stories about like I was the CEO for two years and we (laughs) did these things is very different than my experience of I worked with this function in a company for two years as an external and we did these things. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that is reflected in some of the case studies in, in the book that there, there were some where she was like an external coach or consultant, and there were some where she was embedded as the Mm -hmm. CEO. And it's, it's definitely, there's definitely advantages of having, as she calls it, like, I mean, that's why she started buying companies because she Mm. had this insight that if I own the company, then I have the full authority to give away authority. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think there's, there's benefits to that. And I think, yeah, it's definitely challenging. I find also being a coach and a, or a kind of external consultant, there's obviously the advantages of being a little bit removed from the system. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of, you know, observe it, pick up things that, you know, if you're a CEO or a founder that's, that wants to go on this transformation process, you'll have you're, you know, you're immersed in it. So you're going to have blind spots probably, but that's also challenging as, as you guys know, right. That you can only go so far in some ways, or it's so dependent on mm-hmm. the leader at the top. Yeah. There's so many ways for it to go off the rails. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in it, in my experience, it's really quite rare to have a leader at the top who really gets what it takes you know, even if you try and tell them at the beginning, like it's going to be really hard, mm-hmm. you know, you are going to be pretty much the main obstacle to this working or not working. And it's going to be really confronting. And, and so often people want leaders at the top want, they love the idea of like, yeah, having more time to do strategy and big picture thinking, but they don't realize how much they're going to miss that kind of ability to just helicopter in and interfere Mm -hmm. in something or rescue something or decide something. So that can be really challenging. Like even if you have a leader who says, yes, I want to go full self-management. I've read all the books. I'm conscious. I've done the work. 
And then you're pointing to, okay, but you just swooped in and that decision there, like, what's that about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what right, are you doing? Right. Uh, so that takes a lot of persistence, I think, in terms of giving feedback and yeah, it's tough. And and sometimes I find it easier to, to just be a trainer and to just do mm-hmm. trainings mm-hmm. and then I don't need to worry about the messy stuff and of the system that's not my job i'm just kind of <laughs> providing a bit of a catalyst and some one-on-one coaching training support and then you know off you go best of luck mm-hmm. i wish you all the best totally not to mention the fact that it's i think kind of a a learning booster in some ways to just see a lot of systems mm-hmm. so being able to cut across gives you, you know, you get a certain kind of upgrade from that and you get a certain kind of upgrade from going deep. Speaking of seeing a lot of systems, I would describe you as a fairly, you know, significant node in the self-management ecosystem or network where I feel like you interact with a lot of disparate parties in our field. And I'm curious if we zoom out, how do you feel like it's going? This is a category we, we, we ask maybe like every 20th guest this question. We're all fighting the good fight out there to change the way the world works. What are you seeing and sensing in this moment amidst the pandemic, post-Trump? Where do we sit? What do you feel in terms of optimism, pessimism, and, and noticings? Yeah, it's interesting. I saw yesterday that a really lovely guy I had on my podcast, Jorge Silva from Ten Pines. Mm-hmm. His organization was featured on um, on the BBC website, and there was this. There's been quite a few like little videos and articles and stuff. And of course, the sensational thing that they're interested in is the fact that employees set their own salaries. Uh-huh. So that's like the headline. And I always get excited when I see companies like self managed companies profiled on like you know, BBC website or like these mainstream websites. And I think, oh, wow, great. You know, it's hit the mainstream, but so often they're presented as these kind of quirky freak shows. Yeah, the freak thing. Yeah. And people commenting like, oh yeah, that would never work in my company or in this industry on that country. So sometimes it's a bit of a disappointing reminder that this stuff is still pretty niche, which can get me down sometimes because it feels like there's such a long way to go. But then I feel like my objective is not to make it mainstream necessarily, but to try and connect all of the people and the stories and the examples to each other to kind of strengthen and embolden all the people who are doing it because, you know, they're getting something out of it, enjoying it. And I've been reflecting on recently, like, because I had to do a presentation about self-managing teams at a learning disability charity And so it was super interesting about, I had a training session about how to make my presentation accessible for people with different learning accessibility needs. But it was such a good exercise in general because it made me realize how, like how much jargon we use in this ecosystem that doesn't resonate with most people. And it's just interesting to notice that and think about, you know, how does that serve us and how does it not? And in general, I've been thinking about self-management and who does it privilege and who can it exclude and disadvantage and I guess that comes back to your question about power and I think that's part of it too it's like really I'm really interested in being kind of critical in in a healthy way of like yeah who who does this privilege and who are we leaving out and are we aware of that like Mm -hmm. it's all well and good saying 
oh, career development becomes self-directed. <laughs> but of course, we know the kinds of people who are going to naturally mm-hmm. be great at putting themselves forward for the next progression or or salary increase or whatever. Or the people who make proposals, who are good at crafting proposals, like they can have a lot of influence suddenly because um, you can do that. So totally, yeah. I think I think we are having these conversations in the ecosystem. Like I think there is not. It's not just like uh, self congratulatory. I do think people are starting to have these conversations, and it feels. What I'm excited about is it feels like it's becoming more global. I think really in the last year or so. I felt like we're hearing more stories and examples outside of Europe and North America, which is exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, absolute plus one on the thing that keeps me awake at night about the work we do is that we are replicating patriarchal systems in Mm. a flat way. For sure. Which is a bummer. We're not going to do that. We're not going to let it happen. <laughs> not on my watch. <laughs> not, not on our watch. Um, so, so at a more tactical level, but related to your nodeliness in our ecosystem, <laughs> people ask me very often what to read and what conferences to attend and what training to go to. And you know all the things. So what what are your greatest hits when somebody's like, I want to get on the path Top to in, to enlightenment what do you say oh my gosh it kind of depends on where in the world they are and what like sector they're in for example but i mean books wise of course i appoint them to brave new work thank you very much <laughs> and yeah obviously like the reinventing organizations wiki which is getting a reboot which is really cool and fred's insights for the journey videos which i think still quite a few people are not aware of they're but so good i send them to people yeah, all the time he's done like a hundred plus videos and wow. pretty much every question you have about self-management he's answered it in a short video and yeah and i, I mostly try and pe- point people towards communities i'm often mm. referring people to liberating structures and i'll mm-hmm. often refer them to like you know join the liberating structures global community or like join reinventing works global community or you know because i think yeah what i hear mostly from people and what they love the most is realizing they're not alone You're talking to like-minded people and being like okay like not the only one that thinks this way because it's really lonely if you're in the middle of an organization and you're longing for this stuff and people think that you're just on another planet it's so nice to meet other people who have those same dreams and frustrations we are not alone seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close for today lisa where can our listeners find out more about you and all the things you're doing I guess the easiest way is probably to follow me on Twitter at Disrupt and Learn via my podcast, leadamorphosis.co. And I guess my, my website, reimagineer.com, kind of is a bit of a portal to all of the other things that I'm involved in. Awesome. And most importantly, will you do your Paris Hilton impression? <laughs> Loves it. Lisa, thank you so much for coming today. And to all of our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, a review would mean so much to us or forward our show to someone who needs it. Or you can do both. And a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good, as he always does. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. 
get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something or talk about a moose head. Thank you.